This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to the Online Frogcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with a very different set of experiences. <laughs> I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraud perpetrator, committing several different types of fraud on- online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison, and have since dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the people like I used to be. And that's really what our podcast is about, is talking to you about fraud and how it happens, why it happens, and really most importantly, how you can protect yourself and your business. And today we're going to talk about carding. We have a different term for this fraud tactic in the fraud prevention space, but Brett, how do you define carding? Oh, geez. How do I define carding? You have to understand that that my definition of carding comes from that background as a cyber criminal. Carding to to a cyber criminal really takes up a lot of different things. It it not only means uh, presenting a credit card or ordering something online, trying to get the item or cash out an item, but it also means laundering the funds, acquiring the credit cards. All, the whole spectrum of the of credit card fraud itself is what fraudsters or, or cyber criminals refer to as carding. To, to just break it down into simple terms. There are basically two ways to do carding. You can do it in-store or you can do it online. So if it's in-store, you're going to be presenting a credit card. It's, it's whenever you present a credit card to a merchant. You've got the credit card in hand. You put it in the machine. It takes the charge. Or it's online when the card is not present. That's what's called card not present fraud. How, how would you really add to that, Carice? So in the fraud prevention space, we usually refer to it as clean fraud or standard credit card fraud. Again, you know, it's important to differentiate if the card is used in store or online, because as we've said in previous episodes, if a store credit card is stolen and used in a store, then the bank pays that cardholder back. But if the card is used online, then the merchant has to pay the cardholder back. And they're usually out the product as well, or the service as well as chargeback fees too. So it's in their best interest to be protecting themselves against carding. And I think really the way you break it down is the way it impacts consumers is that's how their card is is stolen, right? So carding impacts them because, you know, they basically have the product that the fraudster wants to steal. And on the merchant side, it's really monetizing that card. You, you yeah. were mentioning uh, like like with fraudsters, and, and I was the same way when I was committing crime and using credit stolen credit card information and everything else. We had no idea that stores, that online merchants 
were responsible for the charges. As a matter of fact, even to this day, you can go on to any number of online cybercrime forums that deal in credit cards, and they'll talk about how you know the merchant doesn't lose anything; it's the bank. The bank loses everything. But as you and I, as I now know, and as you you've known for years, it's no, it's the merchant loses as well if it's online. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I was the one that explained that to you uh, oh, yeah. a year ago, wasn't I? <laughs> Absolutely. I, had, I no, I had no idea. And like I said, even even to this day, it's fraudsters talk about, oh, you know, the merchants, it's, it, it doesn't matter if it's a small store. They can afford it because they're not losing anything. But the truth is, is yes, they are losing. Right. And I think that is a very common misconception with consumers, too. I hear it all the time. Oh, well, my bank paid me back, so it was no big deal. And I, you know, sometimes correct them and say, actually, it impacted that business. And large or small, fraud impacts businesses. And it then gets carried on to the consumers by higher prices or canceling, you know, good orders that might look suspicious because the company is afraid of losing all that money. I mean, there's a pretty well-respected study that comes out every year from LexisNexis and they call it the true cost of fraud survey. And um, every year it's a little bit different dollars wise or things, but I think this last year it was $2 and 40 cents. So it was for every $1 stolen, it costs a card not present retailer. So online in app um, or over the phone, $2 and 40 cents. So if somebody's stealing a hundred dollar product, that's $240 that that merchant has to cover. So that's why it's important to prevent the fraud before you're fulfilling that order. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Talking about the different types of, of fraud that, uh, that these fraudsters, and, and including myself back then as well. But, uh, you know, I did some in-store stuff. So, so in-store carding is, is when you take the card and you, you give it to the cashier or you swipe it through a terminal or you insert it in the terminal so it can read the chip. And the thing is, is that, uh, first of all, when you're doing in-store carding, it's, <laughs> it is... It's an extremely nervous proposition because, you know, Hmm. you're coming in, you know the cards are stolen, you have no idea as a criminal, even if you check the cards before you go out to shop. And by check, I mean you you, you verify that that they're alive, that they can be charged and everything through a a testing service. But uh, you go into the store, and the rule is is you always walk into a store with at least five cards, okay? Hmm. So the idea is, is, you know, you give them one card. If it doesn't go through, you can just fish out another one and say, oh, you know, I just changed addresses. I'm sure that's why it's locked. And you'll mm. give the merchant another card like that. But uh, it is always a nervous proposition. There was one, one time when I was breaking the law that I was in a Hallmark store. And uh, for some reason, I was, I was wanting these Hummel figurines. I don't even know if they sell these things anymore. But uh, I lined up like $2,000 worth of Hummel figurines on the counter, handed the merchant the card. It declines. I give her the, ad, the you know the excuse of well the address I just changed it and I'm sure the bank hasn't updated and that's why the card's locked. It'll, let's try another card. Try the other card. Fails as well. I went through five cards. All five failed. Wow. <laughs> and by the end of it, the merchant's got the lady behind the counter. She's got her manager there. They're both looking at me. And finally, I'm <laughs> like, you know, I don't know what the problem is, but I'll just go across the way here to the ATM and get cash out and be right back. And that's why I ran for it at that point. But, right. you know, in-store carding used to be used to be extremely popular. But mm-hmm. because of EMV now, what we've seen is we've seen, what, a 70% decrease in in-store carding of presenting a physical credit card. 
Um, yeah, on the counterfeit side, right? So when when you're talking about in-store carding, I think there's two different ways to do it, right? Counterfeiting the card or actually having the physical card, which is harder to do. That's like if someone's wallet got stolen or and usually that's kind of a crime of opportunity by, you know, from what I understand, but most of it used to be that it was so easy to counterfeit a card just to put the data from a credit card onto any other card that had a magnetic stripe. So um, a gift card, a hotel key. And as long as they had a terminal that you could swipe it, then the merchant wouldn't realize that it wasn't an actual Visa or MasterCard with someone's name imprinted on it. That's well, how I understand it. No, you're, you're, you're right. To, to give you a clue, you can buy uh, the white plastic magnetic stripe cards. You can buy those for as low as 30 cents a piece. Then you use a, a program called the germ, which will encode the, the, the magnetic stripe on the back of the card. The data that's on the back of the card for carters or for fraudsters is called a dump, D-U-M-P. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually what happens is, is if, if you look at the back of a credit card or a debit card, that magnetic stripe there, there are three data tracks on that stripe. So the first data track is the customer's name. Second data track is the card number. Then there's a forward slash and a 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. And then the, uh, the third data track is called indiscriminate data. No one tends to use that. Well, what's sold on criminal forums is the second data track, just the card mm-hmm. number with the, with the algorithm out beside of it. Because what happens is, is, and all fraudsters know it, what happens is, is you buy the dump and then you can put whatever you want to in the first data track for whatever the name is. So a fraudster will, will buy you know 10 to 12, maybe 20 dumps, and he'll use the same ID, the same fake driver's license, for each one of those dumps because he can actually put whatever name he wants to in the first data track. Oh, those like that. Um, hmm. Now, talking about, you know, the actual having the actual card, you're absolutely right. Up until, uh, I would say up until really the past six months, that has been one of these rare crimes of, of a fraudster, an online fraudster, actually getting the physical credit card, the real credit card, and going out shopping with it. But what, we, what we're starting to see now because of EMV that's a that's a little chip on the credit card. Because of that, we're seeing these fraudsters that are going around to neighborhoods and they'll they'll pull the address, you know, who lives at the address, and then they'll get the social, the date of birth, they'll pull a background check, get the credit report, and then order replacement cards or change the mailing address or have mail mm-hmm. forwarded to another address and get the get the real cards like that and go shop like that. Wow. Well, I know there's some police departments and law enforcement entities that have noticed that they're seeing people damage the chip on the card so that that way it will only default to swiping. Right. Um, But that's still a pretty small percentage because like you said, I mean, we've seen a decrease by 76% or so um, in the counterfeit cards in store. So where do they go? They're not just going to stop carding. They're not going to (laughs) stop committing fraud. And so us on the card not present side, you know, online, in-app, over the phone, have seen a very steep increase in credit card fraud. And I know that this was predicted by the card brands because that's what they saw. It's the same behavior they saw in the UK and in Europe when they went to chip cards many years ago. So it was expected, but still it's been quite a steep increase in chargebacks and um, fraud overall for card not present merchants. And in a way it's easier, right? Because you're not having to be face to face with that merchant and saying, Oh, uh, hang on. I have to use a different card. Like the experience you had. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's the, the card not present fraud is, is much, much easier. That's, that's what fraudsters want to do. It takes, right. I'm going to be honest with you. It takes a real idiot 
to walk into a store with all the cameras that are around today hmm. and try to pass a counterfeit credit card or a stolen credit card. Now it happens right. and it's going to continue to happen. I mean, I, I'm some of the work I'm doing with law enforcement right now, we're starting to hear uh, more than here. We're starting to really get reports now of people who are compromising the EMV chip. Now they've yep. not got, got it fully compromised, but it's happening. And I expect progress to be, to continue with that. Well, but, because a lot of the, the credit card terminals will still default to a swipe. So, like, for whatever reason, the Trader Joe's in my neighborhood does not like my chip card. Everyone else <laughs> likes it just fine. But <laughs> for whatever reason, so it'll we'll try the chip three times, and then I'm able to swipe it. And that's kind of what they're trying to do when they damage the chip. They're trying to make it default to the swipe. But in the next couple of years, that software and the terminals are not going to allow the default to swipe. The only reason they do that now is because there are still some banks that are transitioning to chip. Um, I know like my, my business credit card hasn't been transitioned to chip yet. Um, also gas stations are not going to be transitioned to accept chip or require them to accept chip for a few more years. So it's still, we're still in a transition time, at least in the U S. Um, for anyone listening in Europe and the UK, you're probably rolling your eyes because you guys have dealt with us like 10 years ago. We're a little bit in the dark ages around here. Um, but, I mean, it really, I think that there was a um, a line that was going around, especially after the Target and the um, Home Depot breach w- by the banks, was that, well, once EMV gets put in place, there will be no more credit card fraud. We're taking care of it. We're saving the day. And I think what's important to note is that, no, they're just taking it off their balance sheets. Um, <laughs> that's really, I mean, sorry, people that are uh, tuning in from issuing banks, but that's that's the way it is, right? You take it. It's no longer your liability. Now it's on the merchant. So, um, no, you're, you know, you're with absolutely that, right. I mean, you are, you're yeah. absolutely right about that. And, and, you know, what I saw when I saw first the, the damaged uh, chips and everything was, uh, I guess we can't say the store name, <laughs> but the store was, <laughs> uh, rule. Yeah, the store was this huge, huge chain, like the biggest one in the United States that you can find everything at <laughs> retail. Not, not not online, so not the river one. So what, what people were doing was is uh, you could go through the self-checkout aisle, and um, if you had scratched up the chip or put it in the microwave or anything else like that, enough to damage the chip, you know, you'd try, the, as you said, you'd try the three three swipes, and then it would default to, I mean, you'd try the three inserts, and then it would default to the swipe. That went on at that retail store for, geez, nine months or longer until mm-hmm. they finally started catching on to it. But, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing now, though, is, is actually hacking into the EMV chip. I've talked to uh, some of the work I'm doing. Some of these criminals right now are, are having massive amounts of success hacking into it. Now, they've not been approved for really high dollar amounts. A lot of these guys haven't. But, uh, you know, it, it's what, coming. What do you mean by hacking into it? Like getting a new EMV card, like through account takeover or oh, no. No, ID I'm, theft? Or? What I'm talking about is ordering a, a card that has an EMV chip on it. And programming the EMV chip with a dump. Oh wow! Yeah. So, like, what they would do counterfeiting on the Magstripe, but instead doing it on chip cards. Doing Interesting. Chip card. Wow, I wonder if it's worth the effort when you can just go online. But I mean, <laughs> that's, obviously, that's the question, right? <laughs> no, I, th- I think most of your profit's always going to be online because you can do. Uh, I mean, online stuff breaks down to you know I've got it into like nine different little categories for online carding. 
And what are those, what are those nine categories? Like, what do you, how do you classify them? Well, the way I, the way I classify it, I, I break it down in from physical to virtual and then kind of the leftover stuff from there. So if we're looking at like a, a carter or a fraudster that's using a credit card to buy items. So he's ordering physical items. Now those physical items can be delivered to a drop address that he has set up and he controls himself. Now a drop address is a place where, you know, like an empty apartment, empty home, something like that, uh, uh, drop shipper, something like that, that looks legitimate that a delivery company will leave the package at so he can collect it. So the physical item can be delivered to a, a drop address that he controls, or it can be delivered to a buyer's address, or it can be delivered to a reshipper and then sent on from that. Now, the way I break that down, so in order for a, for a fraudster or a carter, I'm going to say carter, in order for a carter to have a drop and order a physical item. It has to be worth it to him to actually set up the drop and collect the package, okay? So it's not gonna be something like coffee makers or a lot of clothing or stuff like that. It's gonna be something that, that makes it worth his time to go around the neighborhood, find a drop address, make sure the drop address is safe, secure, make sure he can pick up the package there. He knows the entries and, and the exits of the, of the area, everything else. He knows the time that the mail arrives, all this other stuff. So probably so, like electronics, things that can be resold for the highest amount of value. Exactly. Is that what you're talking about? So you're looking right. at laptops, you're looking at phones, any high dollar item that he can collect and sell quickly is what you're looking at there. Mm -hmm. Compared to, and, and this is one of the things that happened this past Christmas. So this past Christmas, one of these coffee maker companies, they, <laughs> they were very easy to hit online. They were very easy to card. They were wide open is what, what the word was on all these cybercrime forums. Well, the problem was is the coffee maker retails for $300. When a criminal resells it, he's only going to make $240. So it's not worth his time because he has to set up a drop address for every single coffee maker that he would receive. It's not worth his time and effort to set up a drop address for each single coffee maker. So what does he do? What he does is he does this type of triangulation fraud. He posts an ad on eBay, and this happened during Christmas. So he posts an ad on eBay saying, hey, I've got 200 of these coffee makers they're for sale at 80% of retail, and he sells them like that. And then he, he cards the item to the actual legitimate buyer's address as a gift and goes mm -hmm. like that. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think actually that company is probably going to be listening because they're uh, people that I know. Um, and so um, sorry about that, guys, but you are aware of what happened. Um, I think they're uh, – definitely took notice and, uh, remedied the issues. Oh yes. Um, but that's interesting. You know, triangulation also happens a lot with, uh, travel and, oh, yeah. um, with amusement park tickets, uh, any kind of entertainment, um, concert tickets, all of those things, as well as we see it a lot on gift cards and the issue for merchants with triangulation beyond the chargeback and paying for the fraud and everything else is now you have this unassuming consumer who, you know, okay, consumers, let's be real here. Um, <laughs> you are listening, and if you see something like this posted on any marketplace or um, classified ads online or anything like that, it's a little bit of buyer beware, right? You might be getting a good deal, but the chances of it being stolen are pretty likely. 
And so what happens is that say you order that coffee maker from this fraudster who used a stolen credit card to purchase it, or you ordered a gift card for 80% of retail to a big company um, on the classified ad or marketplace, but now you try to use that gift card and there's no money on it because the merchant realized that it was fraud and they took the money off the card. Well, now you're going to call the merchant and get upset because where's my money? I bought a card, you know, a gift card for your store. Well, you didn't buy it directly from the merchant. And unfortunately, now you're out that money as a consumer because your card wasn't used to make that purchase. Someone else's card was used to make that purchase. Now, your card might be used um, for another purchase down the line from another another retailer if they you gave them your full card number. But a lot of times what happens is that, you know, you made the purchase from the marketplace, but the fraudster used a stolen card for that merchant. So now you don't really have a leg to stand on to get your money back for that gift card or to go to that concert or to go to that amusement park. So really, if you're not making a purchase from of a gift card or any of these things or even physical goods products from the retailer itself, it's kind of on you. Um, and it's a it's, problem. Yeah, but then it's a problem for the merchants, right? Because right. it's a customer service issue and trying to um, remedy that and not wanting to impact their brand. But also, I mean, if somebody used a stolen credit card to buy a $200 gift card on their website with a stolen credit card, they're already out that money to the cardholder. And if the gift card's been used, then they're out that gift card money as well. But if it hasn't been used yet, now the customer calls in and says, well, I want my $200 gift card. Well, right. now do you fulfill another $200 and you're out that too? Or do you say, hey, you know, we only guarantee cards that are purchased from our website. Um, it's a difficult business decision and every company makes uh, a different decision on how they deal with that. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of this stuff, you, you like the guy, then there were several, the guys on eBay that were selling these coffee makers and they had 200 of these things listed. That is not uncommon. And the thing is, is that a lot of consumers, if you don't realize it, let me clue you in now. If a guy's got 200 of a brand new item <laughs> and he's not running his own company, there is something wrong right. there. Okay? If you go on Craigslist and you see a picture of a guy that's got a basement full of iPhones... <laughs> the chances are those iPhones or video are, games or yeah. video games or whatever those chances are those things are stolen uh, at the least at the very least you have absolutely no warranty on them at the very right. least at the most you're going to have a knock at the door when the cops come and get you for buying stolen goods or anything else like that right or your phone may not be workable absolutely. I mean there are some consumers you know that I know personally who say well why do I care if it was stolen or not and that's, I mean, beyond the ethical reasons behind it, yeah, you have no guarantee, no leg to stand on for the product that you're buying. Right. And, and for example, Apple now, for, for years, Apple did not shut down phones that were stolen either, you know, out of purses or through stores or anything else like that. But now Apple's even started shutting those down. So if you're buying these phones online and they're, they're questionable to begin with, when Apple shuts your phone down and you can't, you can't use it anymore, you have no one to blame. No one to blame right. but yourself on that. Right, and you're out the money because he gave right. it to a fraudster. He's not going to have a refund policy. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. He's a fraudster. <laughs> <laughs> right, and wherever you met him, he's not going to be there tomorrow. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
But, uh, but so what on. are the other categories uh, that you so break carding down into for online? Sure. So the uh, the third uh, form of physical goods is physical items to a reshipper. Uh, I think you had mentioned that to me previously that we were seeing a lot of fraud that was taking place. Uh, someone buys something in the United States, has it sent to a reshipper, and they send it back mm-hmm. over to Venezuela from of uh-huh. all places. Camping goods. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I worked with a merchant in my consulting business that had we had to dig quite a bit to figure out what was going on. But yeah, it was goods being sold to Venezuela because they don't have a lot of, you know, goods right now. Right. And so it was a whole complicated thing, but yeah, they were, they were reshipping them. So they were, you know, using stolen credit cards, having them shipped to South Florida and then reshipping them to Venezuela, probably not through the typical above board parcel shipping companies. Um, right, you're, you're right. I mean, most of the time, if that. you're a reshipping company, the U.S. Postal Service wants you to register as that reshipper, as as a basically a mailbox type company. A lot of companies don't do that. A lot of these mom and pop joints don't do that. So for reshippers, you've got the the you've got small mom and pop stores that will take the goods, and either they're complicit or they're not. But either way, those goods tend to pay a lot of the bills for these reshippers. So they'll they'll go ahead and ship you know the multiple items out to Venezuela or Brazil or the Ukraine or where have you. So that goes on. You've got reshippers that are people. So uh, the people can be complicit or not. Uh, for example, on fraud forms, you see uh, a lot of the new guys or, or the would be cyber criminals. They come on and they'll say, you know, I've got drop addresses. Send the items to me, then I'll forward them on to whoever you want me to forward them. So you get reshippers like that. You get um, people that will post ads for po- personal assistance, things like that, to get a reshipper. So they use a real address. A person that usually doesn't know what's going on receives the item, forwards it on, ends up getting arrested. <laughs> you know, that's that's the basically the physical type of goods. Um, as you mentioned, that also goes into virtual items, where the, whether it be concert tickets, game keys. Um, travel, any number of things like that. So the same thing happens with these virtual items. It can be delivered to an address that's an email address that's controlled by the fraudster himself, or it can be this triangulation type fraud too. So that he actually cards it to the email address of the legitimate buyer at that point. To round things out, payment processor fraud. And what I mean by that is any type of payment processor, Stripe, Square, um, PayPal, anything like that. It's, it's basically a fraudster who will set up a fake store, let it age out until it looks legitimate. He'll probably even run some some legitimate money through that store to begin with in order to make things look good. Once that's done, he starts buying a bunch of credit cards and launders the credit card funds through that and cashes out. Also, online orders for in-store pickups. So that's another way this is done. So what you see is a fraudster will use a credit card, he'll order an item and have it so that the person can walk into the store and actually pick it up in-store pretty popular right now with several different retail stores. It's, uh, mm-hmm. should I say the name, Carice? No. <laughs> okay. Well, <but> several <laughs> stores, we know who we're talking about. And then all phone orders, all phone orders and all catalog orders as well. I would echo that. I mean, that's what businesses are seeing as well is a lot of those things. I just received an email from a retailer that is primarily online, but 
considering or, you know, it's on their trajectory for their business to have in-person stores, which you see with several online companies, they're trying to diversify and they wanted to know what type of fraud they should expect to see. And obviously ordering online, picking up in store is a big one, but there's others as well when you have introduced that multi-channel aspect. And I mean, it makes sense for businesses to want to make things as seamless as possible for consumers. But there's also this other side of it too. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, 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 the first time I did in-store pickup, and I, I never did it illegally, but the first time I've ever done it was last week. So what? Oh, yeah, last week. You mean not? Oh, you done. mean very legally? legally. I, I never did it as a criminal. But I was right. Always, well, it's I been always, fairly new yeah. introductions, so, right? Uh, I was online and, and Walmart had this video game for sale. It was like $20 off the retail price and it just came out and I was like, yes, I need that. So <laughs> I got online, got the in-store pickup, walked into Walmart. I, I walk up to the customer service counter and I tell them I'm here to pick up my item. And they tell me, no, 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 we don't handle that here. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they point me out to this little section that they've built that has little mm. couches and a screen and everything else. And you go over there and you input the information on the screen, the order number and your last name, and they bring the item out to you. And I'm sitting there like, wow, this is pretty nice. So huh. they bring the item out to me and hand it to me and ask me to sign. And I'm like, don't you need to see my driver's license? Oh, and boy. Like, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, that's good to know. That's good to know. So... <laughs> I but for the record, not because you're going to go back and do no, anything easy. No, not at all. I was just sitting there. <laughs> I went out and I, my wife was waiting on me in the car. And I was like, uh, I looked at her and I said, Michelle. She was like, yeah. And I was like, you would not believe. Who didn't ask me for a driver's license? <laughs> well, like, you and I are probably very similar where whenever there's a new business model or new offering or anything, we think about how it's going to be exploited. One of my oh, yeah. favorite things to do when a startup contacts me is I can guess what type of fraud they're going to have. If they have card testing, ATO, whatever it is, and you're probably more equipped to do that even than I am, but just working with so many different types of companies and so many verticals and just, you know, being around so many different people and businesses, you kind of pick up on what they're going to, what they're going to attract and, and what category of carding they're going to see. Yeah. Get, yeah. Give me the category of business, the size of the company. We'll figure yeah. out how you're going to get hit. I <laughs> guess. And I mean, this is just my guess. I, I mean, while I've worked that company before, not, not on this specific thing. So I don't know, but my guess would be if you ordered something higher dollar, they would require an ID. There has to be a dollar amount. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that's part of it, but with, you know, high health or how high the volume is of how many people that probably do that, you know, business has to weigh out not just how to protect themselves from fraud, but how to have a seamless experience and not have as much consumer friction. So they'll look at how do we, you know, how do we allow this to happen? You know, ordering in store or ordering in store, getting shipped online or ordering online and shipping in, you know, pick up in store or any other thing that they're doing, you know, how do we do this without customer friction, but still protect our business? So one way might be that anything over a certain dollar threshold is going to require extra information, but under that they are willing to kind of, you know, take the risk on right. the issue and something that's kind of surprised me as we've talked about fraud over the course of our friendship is just how specific fraudsters are on knowing those things. So oh, there's geez. probably an ad out there on the dark web that says, well, under this amount, you can get away with it over this amount. You can't, 
Um, and it's so specific down to the company and the items. And I mean, I've just, it's blown me away at how they're continually testing velocity and thresholds and, and systems. And okay, you, if you age your cookie on this site and do this or that and have the billing and shipping match, then it'll get through. Or if you place an order under $50, it'll go through, but over 50, it's going to have more scrutiny or whatever it is. It's so specific. So merchants, if you, you know, have these static rule sets that, you know, really, especially the linear rule sets, they're going to figure those out. Oh, you're, you're right. I mean, I was, Last night I was doing some darknet lookups, and uh, one of the things I came across was this large computer company that has historically been a target of fraudsters. <laughs> and uh, the question online was, uh, can you still card this company? Meaning, can a fraudster still use stolen credit card information to order products from this company? So there was a breakdown of how to do it. And the breakdown basically was, okay, you have to make sure that any single order is below $480. So as long as it's below $480, as long as the address has not been seen by by this company before, and I almost said the company name, but as long as the address hasn't been seen by the company before, as long as the dollar amount's below $480, as long as the credit card information is valid and chargeable, you can get these products. And I mean, it wow. was a complete walkthrough of it. Uh, same thing happened with another company I was looking at that uh, was talking about, as you mentioned, gift cards. And it mm -hmm. said, you know, hey, anything over $50 you can't get, but you can get under $50 all day long. And I'm like, right. oh, okay. And that, that's typical, that type of specificity with, with fraudsters. They walk you through step-by-step -step, dollar amounts, tools that you need to use, everything else to get these crimes committed. Well, that first company that you mentioned, we have – is it the company that we know are uh, very um, avid listeners of our podcast? Yeah. Okay, so you need to send an email um, <laughs> before this goes out and let them know about that. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> that is uh, that is something that that Brett uh, does for clients. But also, you know, if we know them, I and if we know that you are um, avid listeners of our podcast, then we definitely want to watch out for you. So that's something that I know they would want to know. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, you know. I, yeah, Carice will tell you too. I'm, I'm not one of these guys that, that finds information out and doesn't share it. I'm all about right. getting the information out there because the crooks know it. The good guys need to know it too. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's something that you do in your business, but also I think that's why we're such a good combination because, you know, you know that company through an introduction by me and, and sometimes I'm able to put together the pieces. I don't know how many times you'll say, oh, this company's getting hit all day long and I'll say, oh, well, you know, they have the same fraud provider as that other company that you right. said was getting hit, or they just got a new fraud manager, or, well, you know, they're having some issues on their end, or I, they've contacted me too. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But whenever either of us know people at a company and we hear about it being talked on the dark web, we'll send a note. I mean, definitely, Absolutely. I think that, you know, you provide it more on a regular basis where you go out and look for that information for those companies. But if it comes up and you see it, you're not going to just let it go by the wayside because it is so important for them to know. Um, a lot of times, I, like I said, I've been surprised at how much more the fraudsters know about businesses than the business knows about their, you know, their vulnerabilities. <laughs> it gets sad. It, it really does. I was, I was over right. in the UK and, uh, talking to a guy that was consulting with a, with a large company over there. And this large company, they sold gift cards. And the CEO over there told the, uh, told the consultant that, uh, you know, hey, I don't see why 
anyone would ever use a gift card to, you know, card pizza. So oh, we don't have to worry about that type of fraud. So, <laughs> you know, we sat down, I sat down with, uh, my friend's name is Peter. I sat down, we were talking about it and he, Peter was like, you know, I, I had to pull every single record and I started showing him not just, is it common, but it was very popular for these producers to card pizza. And it is. Well, and you said food delivery is very common right now because it's a great way to test the card to see if it's valid and also get free dinner out of it. (laughs) Absolutely. The thing is, is that uh, that, that's one of the things that you see on these techniques is, and that's why it's important too for a consumer to monitor these things. So so if a consumer is not monitoring and a criminal gets your card, so the criminal signs up for one of these drive services or a a food delivery services or something like that, you know, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Lyft, something, it doesn't matter the name of the company, just one of these companies like that. So he signs up for one of these, he actually gets the charge through. Now, if you were, as a consumer, if you were monitoring that, you would have an Mm -hmm. alert saying that this came through. But by not monitoring it, that low dollar amount may, may go unnoticed by the consumer. Well, when that happens, all of a sudden it makes that card, that stolen information, much more legitimate to the criminal. So he's got that $15 Mm -hmm. charge through. It's went through fine. The bank sees that it's not been flagged or anything like that. They think it's legitimate. So that way, the next larger charge that goes through, the chances of that going through, pretty high at that point. Well, right. And I mean, you and I have talked about this offline because I had a large marketplace contact me about a specific bin, which is the first six digits, the credit card that they kept seeing come through with ten dollars to $12,000 transactions. And right. that's not super uncommon for this merchant. So they're not going to just flag that. And they're noticing it's all on the same type of card. And it's, you know, they were upset that the issuing bank wasn't contacting the consumer and telling them about the suspicious activity. And really what it comes down to is, like I said before, I mean, unfortunately, and I don't mean to sound cynical, I think that being in this industry makes me cynical sometimes. But, (laughs) um, you know, issuing banks, A, that's regular behavior for these consumers, whether it's, you know, these are high dollar transactions, but these are high limit cards and that's common. But even down using the example you're using with food delivery, it's pretty common thing for people. So they're probably not going to flag it. And then when more orders come through with similar um, behavior, they're probably not going to look for it. So it really is down to up to the business to be looking for suspicious activity. What doesn't look normal? What patterns are you seeing? Are you seeing a pattern of the first six digits of the card are the same on all these fraudulent transactions? Maybe you need to take a look at that. Consumers, you can't expect your bank to notify you is what I think we're both saying. And businesses can't expect the bank to decline a transaction if it's fraud. There's a lot of small businesses out there that think that as long as the card got authorized, it's not fraud. And that's just the false sense of security. And unfortunately, they get a huge wake-up call when they get a large charge back and the money is deducted from their account. Absolutely. And that can be crippling to a small business. Yeah, absolutely. And and this this is a problem with, with as, you, as you pointed out, it's a problem not only with consumers but merchants as well. I mean, we mm-hmm. you have to get to the point where you realize that monitoring is extremely important and security isn't handled by someone else. I mean, you can, you can, Mm. you can offshoot parts of it, but security needs to be handled by you as well. All right. Even if you're a merchant and you sign on with a security company, you need to be aware of every single thing that's going, going on. That that's part of it. You have to do that. You have to do that. 
Well, right. And also, no, you know, looking at it and making sure that only the right transactions are being canceled. Right. Because a lot of times what will happen is, especially if a merchant just leaves it up to the experts of another tool, then a lot of times you're getting what we call false positives or insults. And you are not only losing that customer for that current sale, you're losing them for the future. I mean, I heard a quote once that stuck with me that said that for every transaction that you're canceling, because you think it's fraud and it's not fraud, you're actually referring that customer to your competitor for life. That's it. I mean, that's it. And, and you know, go, going back to, uh, to, to like the security companies, time and again, we see security companies or, or anti-fraud companies, if you want to call them that, they come up with a product that when it's initially launched, it's outstanding. I mean, it, it really does exactly what it says. It cuts fraud. It, it does a great job. And they sign up a lot of people and they never innovate on the product. <laughs> and and meanwhile, fraudsters are always innovating on their product. Right. So it's only a matter of time until the new product that the anti-fraud or the security company has is out of date and useless anymore. And I've seen that time and time again among security companies these days. Oh, I have too, definitely. And I'll see these patterns, especially you know over the last 13 years of my career. And when I first started out, there was only one anti-fraud solution. And now I can't even count how many there are. And so many of them are great and they're really important to the ecosystem. Merchants couldn't do it alone. So don't get me wrong on that. Um, but there are some that kind of get complacent of being at the top of the hill and doing a good job and maybe they don't continue to innovate. Now, there are a lot of them that do. And I think that's important to say. But what I tell merchants is you can't fight today's fraud with yesterday's tools. And you need to be, you know, if your fraud provider isn't innovating and you start to see your fraud rates go up, it might be time to either add an additional layer of verification or to look at another you know, core provider. And the way that I break up anti-fraud providers on the merchant side is there's case management systems, which are like your typical, or not typical, but they're kind of the baseline foundation of, of fraud fighting. They'll often assign a score to the transaction on how risky it is. Um, how they do that score is usually either through linear rules, like rules that a merchant will write based on the fraud that they've seen before. So if this and this, then this. So, you know, if the, um, I'm not going to get too far into details just in case uh, anyone who is a carter is listening. But one example that I think is well known is if billing and shipping don't match, then assess a little bit of a higher score to it. Things like that. But those change over time. So merchants need to be aware and constantly looking at their chargebacks of what they're missing as well as what they're catching and figuring out what behavior they need to be writing rules for. The other type is machine learning. So that, you know, is the system actually learning and picking up on small things. And it's very dynamic. So if there's a current fraud trend, it's not waiting on the merchant to find it and, you know, setting a rule that's kind of reactive. It's creating a rule right now in real time based on this behavior. Hmm, we're seeing a spike at 2 a.m. of IP addresses in Russia that seem to be doing suspicious activity. Let's weight that a little bit higher. Um, and then there's also hybrids where you can do both, which is usually my suggestion. Now, for retailers who know how to write rules, those rules engines are are great and they're fine. But for digital goods that are instantaneous delivery that you don't have time to have humans to perform manual review on, 
usually machine learning is going to be a little bit better for your system. Um, and then you also have all these verification tools that you can layer on top, like for device ID or name and address verification, email verification, all these different types of tools that you can layer on top to provide more insight to verify that a consumer is who they say they are, that they've lived at that address for 20 years. And then there's also all these, you know, behavior biometrics or other tools that are coming up that are really interesting in AI and all of that. But I think it's important for merchants to look at what they're losing, look at what they're seeing, and then look for a tool to to help with that and to help provide more insight into it. And really, they're using either your internal data um, of customer behavior. They're learning ex- using external data with, or bank data, really, with the AVS and CVV match. Or they're using external data like from public records, things like that. So knowing where the data is coming from and what they're verifying and being involved in, and continually looking and seeing what's out there and what can help is, is going to be really important for your business. I, I agree completely with that. And, and the thing is, is that Everything you mentioned, like like machine learning, absolutely great. A, a lot of these companies, you're you're right, they do an outstanding job. Um, I could name companies right now that I'm very happy with. <laughs> um, I will say that, like you know, happy with learning, now that you're on this side, you wouldn't exactly. be so happy. If, with I, that if I was on the other <laughs> side, I would be very upset. <laughs> so, right. You know, it, it's like machine learning. Machine learning is as good as the perimeters that you put in it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's as good as what you program it to do. But even with that, it, all machine learning is not the same. So right. you have companies that do it real time. You have companies that issue a report once a month and claim it's machine <laughs> learning. So it's not. You have to be aware of, of who you're signing on with and, and what they do compared right. to other companies. And not only that, but you have to be aware of what fraudsters are doing. To give you an example – a new carter, when he starts out, someone brand new that doesn't have an idea about anything. He goes on the dark net, he buys a credit card number. The credit card's going to run anywhere from $15 to $20, depending on the bin, which is the first six digits of the card. It tells the issuing bank the type of card it is, depending on the location, depending on the gender. So he, say he buys a card for $18 for his local area. So what's he going to do? A brand new guy, what he's going to do is he's going to get his laptop and he's going to go out to a Wi-Fi spot someplace and try to order an item. Sometimes he'll order the item to his own address. If he's a little bit smarter, he orders the item to a drop address, which is going to be an empty home someplace. Now, most of the time, most of the time, that type of fraud fails miserably. But, and there's always a but, you can't stop it all the time because Mm. sometimes that fraud goes through. And why does it go through? Well, the Wi-Fi is clean. The device that he's using is, is, is clean. It's not been fingerprinted anywhere before. The drop address that he's using is clean. The, the card is local. So everything looks kind of legitimate. If a merchant is not really aware of everything that's going on, the chances of that order going through, even though billing and shipping is different, is pretty high. And that's just Right, because there's business. a lot of legitimate cases of billing and shipping being Absolutely. different. Compared to, now you take someone that's more advanced, you take a really advanced fraudster, what he's going to do, there's a few techniques that he can use. So he's going to use, say he gets a local card, or say he gets a card that's three states away. Well, he can use any number of spoofing devices, spoofing tools to spoof his location. So he can use a SOX5 proxy, which will put him within five miles of the actual card holder, his, his actual spoofed address. So it appears when he orders an item online 
that he's ordering from the area that the actual cardholder lives in. He can buy that for 30 cents. If he wants something a little bit more secure, he can get a remote desktop. So a remote desktop is actually uh, a machine that's been taken over and set up within another machine within an area that he wants it set up. So some geolocated area that runs $5 comes with a brand new IP address, clean machine, everything else. It's actually a computer system that he's signing into. He can get that for $5. Say that he's trying to spoof fingerprints. So what happens is, and I was released from prison in 2011. So in 2011, fraudsters at that point were reading white papers. And yes, fraudsters read white papers. (laughs) I've written a few that I'm sure they have read. Absolutely. But they were reading white papers on browser fingerprinting. Yeah, that was around the time that it was starting starting to become a big thing. And in case no one knows, browser fingerprinting is basically you sign on to a website and the browser you use, the company that you sign on to, is able to record like 42 different characteristics of that browser. They can figure out font type, CPU type, uh, Java, everything else on that. And it's, the language you the have language your browser set to. And it's unique enough that you can actually identify one specific user out of millions, right? Mm-hmm. So... Fraudsters started reading the white papers on this, and their response was, you know, we have to worry about this. This is going to go widespread. Mm-hmm. So it took them two years, but two years later, they come up with two tools, and one of them is called FraudFox. The other one is called AntiDetect, and they spoof browser fingerprints. So now you can buy credit card information that actually has what should be the browser fingerprint of the legitimate user, and you can spoof that legitimate fingerprint when you sign on to their bank account, merchant account, credit card account, anything else like that. And it looks more legitimate like that. Uh, you mentioned yourself aging cookies. So now, mm-hmm. now fraudsters these days, they, they go to a website, and instead of immediately going to a website, picking out the most expensive item and trying to order it right then, no, they don't do that. Now they go to the website, and they'll browse around for a while. Maybe they'll put something in the cart, take it out, leave for a while, come back a couple of days later, maybe sign on to the website, you know, register an account, maybe not. And they'll spend a few days making it look like they're a a legitimate user. And then they'll order an item. And then what do they do from there? If If they have any question about it, as soon as they order the item, they pick up the phone, they spoof the phone number of the actual card holder. That way, when they call the store, it appears on the store's caller ID as the phone number of the card holder. And they say, hey, I just placed an order. Look, I know the billing is, the shipping address is different. That's because we just moved or that's because I'm sending it to my son for a birthday gift or, or what have you. But they, they social engineer the customer service department of the store to make sure there's no type of manual verification that kicks in place. Mm-hmm. Well, and all of that that you just said is really the evolution of fraud prevention, but also, you know, committing fraud is that it's really this cat and mouse game. So as soon as the anti-fraud side has found tools or systems or or ways to detect fraud, you know, to make it, it's really all about the bad guys are trying to look as legitimate as possible and the good guys are trying to figure out, but what pieces of that aren't legitimate and how can we detect that? And, you know, to back to what we were kind of saying originally a little bit ago is that when you're using the same fraud tool that worked five years ago, well, it's not going to work when they've learned how to spoof device ID. And something that you did at CMP Expo about a month ago, actually, it's only been three weeks, but probably once this airs, <laughs> it'll have been a, a month or two. It sure feels like it's been longer. You know, you really were able to show people, like, 
hey, don't have a false sense of security. And I think that's what we're trying to say, right? Not to scare people, either consumers or merchants, is don't have a false sense of security. Know that you need to continually grow and change. And I have this metaphor and analogy that I use quite often when I speak at conferences, and that is that a lot of fraud departments feel like they're fighting a dragon, especially when they first start getting fraud. They'll think that there's just this one fraud attack that they have to solve, and then they'll move on with their lives. And once they get that taken away, but really we're fighting zombies and zombies, they recreate themselves. They recharge, they adapt to the tools that you're using. So if a baseball bat worked, you know, yesterday, now they're no longer prone to a baseball bat. Now they can, you know, survive that. I go into much more detail on that in an article on cardnotpresent.com, but um, if you search the word zombies, you'll find it because that's the only article on the website about <laughs> zombies. <laughs> um, and I was uh, very excited to hear that a company that has a um, TV show about zombies is actually using my slide deck uh, to internally explain to their company um, about fraud and why Sweet. it's important. Um, yeah, it kind of felt full circle for me. Um, but I think that it's important to have that mindset. And as a consumer, it's important to have the mindset of nothing's going to give me a false sense of security. Even the monitoring companies that you can sign up with, you still have to do your own due diligence. And like Brett said on a previous episode, you need to still be monitoring your credit card activity because those monitoring companies might only monitor new credit lines. They're not going to monitor that. And even when the card companies or, you know, another company is monitoring your card activity, you know, what's normal for you. You know what purchases you made. They just are looking at the behavior. Um, so they may not realize that that was a good or bad purchase. And bad guys are looking at your behavior too. If they get access to your inbox, your email inbox, they can see where you shop and they're going to go make purchases there to look as legitimate as possible to the issuer. So, you know, it's probably time to start wrapping up. Uh, this is a topic that we can talk about for hours and we, we probably will. Carding is such just, it really is the basis for all fraud that happens. We'll talk about other tactics like account takeover and reshipping and triangulation more in detail down the road. But really carding is what all of this is about. And we'll talk about it a lot. And we'll probably never eradicate all of carding because it's just too lucrative. Uh, and not all companies or consumers will 100% protect themselves from the behavior. But really, it's all about making it harder to commit the fraud, it's the first step to at least protecting yourself, whether you're a consumer or a merchant. Uh, not really needing to outrun the bear, but outrunning, you know, everyone else that's outrunning the bear. And of course I want to eradicate it. I just don't want to be, you know, give anyone again a false sense of security or a false sense of hope. But it's definitely something we'll revisit quite a bit. Hopefully it gives you some baseline knowledge on the topic, how to protect yourself, your business, and also as we progress and talk about more complicated and more complex fraud behavior, you understand, you know, some of the ways that credit cards are being used and why they're being used. Absolutely. And with that, that's our episode for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot and we'll take our advice as soon as this episode's done. Our future episodes will, co will cover even more information about cybercrime prevention you need to know. So subscribe to the online broadcast and be alerted when a new episode is out. And because we're new, hey, please tell your friends. Rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics too.
And also email us with your fraud stories, whether you're a consumer and you had your card stolen or were fished by email or had your, you know, had a new card opened in your name, or if you're a business and you're experiencing this type of fraud. And if we read your email on the air, you'll receive free advice on what happened to you, why it happened and how to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And you can email us at info at onlinefraudcast.com. Until next time. Stay informed. Stay vigilant. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.